Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. When activist and crafter Shannon Downey gets angry, she puts it all into her projects. I call it rage stitching. So sometimes I just rage stitch. Like, I have no plan. Maybe I've had a glass of wine and I'm ready to just stab something until I feel better. We'll find out more about the Chicago craftivist in just a bit. But first, it was an historic day on Capitol Hill. Congress announced two articles of impeachment against President Donald J. Trump. President Trump abused the power of his office by conditioning two official acts to get Ukraine to help his reelection. In so doing, he undermined our national security and jeopardized the integrity of our next election. That's California Democrat Adam Schiff, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. Another member of that committee is Democratic Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. He represents the 8th District, which covers Chicago's northwest suburbs. Krishnamurthy explains why the committees in charge of the impeachment went for two specific articles, obstruction of Congress and abuse of power. I think they set forth the clearest uh, infractions, if you will, uh, of the Constitution that the president engaged in. As Chairman Schiff um, said, uh, you know, essentially the president used his office to basically try to pressure a foreign power, the Ukraine, to interfere in our elections by trying to investigate one of his domestic political rivals. Um, and then once the inquiry began into this uh, pattern of wrongdoing, essentially the, the White House did everything in its power to prevent witnesses from coming forward and uh, basically uh, blocking the production of any documents whatsoever uh, to aid in the inquiry. And so this is very serious, um, and that's why um, I think these particular charges need to be considered very seriously by all members of the House. You represent a suburban district with quite a few Republicans in it. What do you say to a constituent of yours who might say this impeachment inquiry is a waste of time or that President Trump's actions are not all that serious? Well, gosh, I don't think that anything gets more serious than leveraging the incredible powers of the office of the presidency to get a foreign power to interfere in our elections, thereby compromising our election security, and at the same time uh, withholding aid from a from a nation that's you know basically helping uh, to combat aggression from Russia, thereby endangering our national security when we withhold that aid. This is in fact, what the framers of the Constitution envisioned when they thought of the impeachment clause. They very much wanted to prohibit or prevent any foreign power from interfering in our domestic affairs. And that's exactly what the president uh, appears to have done in this particular case, inviting a foreign power to get involved in our domestic affairs. And um, we we can't allow that to happen. And yet throughout the impeachment uh, hearings, There were partisan clashes on just about every issue and question. How do you explain the difference in perspective between how Democrats see the president's actions and how Republicans view them? Well, I think that, you know, in private, many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, concede that what happened here was at the least, uh, you know, inappropriate and not the way that foreign affairs should ever be conducted. But I think that Our president, unfortunately, has uh, helped polarize the country and colored some of my colleagues' views on this issue uh, and in the process, I think, um, muddied the waters. That being said, even though this is a divisive process, you know, I took an oath, as as did my colleagues, to 
you know, protect our Constitution. Uh, we swore an oath to protect our Constitution, and I think we all have to fulfill that oath now. Congressman, are Democrats in the House in lockstep on this on this issue? I wouldn't say they're in lockstep. I, I, I think that there's definitely different views of what's happened, but I think there is a uh, a consensus opinion within my caucus that what the president did here merited the inquiry that began, the impeachment inquiry. And at this point, there's broad support for what the Judiciary Committee has done in introducing these articles. How people vote going forward, I think, is going to be a matter of individual conscience. Well, Congressman, you, you mentioned conversations with your colleagues on the other side of the aisle. Have you spoken to any of the five Republicans in the House, in the Illinois delegation, either explain or try to sway them to your point of view or just hear what's on their minds? Well, not yet today. Um, I I haven't yet seen them. Um, I'm sure that we're going to have conversations in the days ahead. And, you know, I will uh, uh, probably have some substantive discussion uh, with regard to them uh, on these issues. But, you know, I have to say that the president um, has done everything in his power to, you know, essentially command personal loyalty uh, with regard to this whole situation. And if people uh, express an opinion that is out of step with his own, um, he basically uh, threatens to have his base go after them, uh, whether it's in the form of a primary uh, challenge or something else. And and so, you know, I just, um, you know, respectfully submit to my colleagues that, you know, we all swore a common oath this particular situation, the one with Ukraine, was begun when an inspector general appointed by President Trump came forward to us in the Intelligence Committee and said, I'm paraphrasing, you know, red lights flashing, you have to investigate and do something about this. Because in all of his time, uh, in his position, he had never uh, seen anything like this, and he had never come forward with such a uh, complaint. And so this is, this is serious. This step this morning brings an American president up to the edge of impeachment for just the fourth time in in history. How much time have you spent thinking about that history as you participated in impeachment hearings? Gosh, a lot. I've been reading a lot about, you know, past impeachments. Uh, I've been uh, trying to understand uh, better how the framers of the Constitution viewed this particular issue and um, the more that I read and the more that I digest uh, with regard to this particular situation, the more convinced I am that I believe that we are doing what is right here. I don't know uh, any of the uh, uh, political consequences, but I, I believe that what we're doing is right. And sometimes we have to vindicate the Constitution regardless of what's to come. And here is a situation where we cannot allow this to go unaddressed this particular situation. I want to run through the next steps very quickly in this process. Uh, The Judiciary Committee will debate the articles tomorrow. A vote is expected Thursday, which would send the question of impeachment to the full House. And if that goes through, we could have a trial in the Senate next month. Republicans argue that this process has gone too quickly. How do you respond? Gosh, I, I respectfully disagree. You know, we've had at this point Dozens of uh, witnesses come forward, thousands and thousands of pages of uh, documents that they produced, you know, emails and text messages and and other uh, forms of evidence. And uh, 
we we now have a pretty good understanding of the facts. Nobody questions the basic facts. At this point, it's time to apply the Constitution to what we've learned. If the House votes to impeach, but the Senate does not, in your mind, was this process still a success? I can't honestly say that um, I would describe this process as in, in those terms, I think it's a sad moment in, in our history when we have to even engage in this process to begin with. Um, I think that what we are doing in the House and the way that we've gone about it, especially as you saw through the hearings and the incredible testimony of uh, the di- different witnesses, the career public servants who came forward, I think that we have handled this with the solemnity it deserves and the rigor that it deserves What happens in the Senate, I don't know, and it's going to be up to individual senators, again, to to examine the facts and and vote their conscience. We have to, of course, acknowledge the fact that this is happening against the backdrop of the 2020 presidential election. What's your read on on how this process could affect that? I honestly don't know, Jen. I, um, I think that Right now, we're unfortunately a little bit of a polarized country, um, and I think that our president contributes to that dynamic uh, in the way that he talks about his opponents and talks about public policy issues and so forth. That being said, I think that uh, if we Democrats do what is right, um, and if we also at the same time try to uh, deliver on the the everyday uh, business of the American people, whether it's addressing their health care issues or concerns about education or making sure they have good paid jobs, I think we're going to do okay. And I think that our uh, presidential candidates, uh, so long as they put forward a a vision that mirrors the same, will do okay too. That's Illinois Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. He represents the 8th District in the Northwest suburbs. Congressman, thanks for speaking with us. Hey, thanks, Jen. Seven years ago, Shannon Downey came across a Star Trek pattern for cross-stitching, and she was instantly hooked. She started stitching every day, and at first, stitching was a way to relax, but it quickly became a way for her to express her thoughts about issues around racial injustice, gun violence, and feminism. A self-described craftivist, Downey threads together art and activism in her work. And she joins me now for the latest in our Chicago Creative Series. In this series, we bring you conversations with innovators from the Chicago area in a variety of fields. Shannon, welcome to Reset. Thanks. So talk a little bit about that moment that led you to cross-stitching and why you connected to it. Yeah, well, I learned how to cross-stitch in fifth grade. A teacher taught me. I made a pink bunny and I thought, well, this is stupid. I'm never going to do this again. And then I was I was running a digital marketing company that I had started, and I was on year like 10, and I was so burnt out from being connected to a device 24-7. And I thought, I need to do something with my hands. Like, I just need something creative in my life. And I was, of course, on Etsy and came across a Star Trek pattern. It was Captain Picard, and it was cross-stitch. And I stitched it that weekend, and my life hasn't been the same since. Talk about the kinds of messages you're trying to convey in your work. Everything I do right now is about engaging people in hard conversations and finding the unique medium, but also like a unique way to spin the commentary in order to engage folks in conversation around challenging topics around capitalism, white supremacy, feminism, things that people don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about, especially on the Internet or want to talk about. But for some reason, this medium is such an 
miraculous way to start and facilitate those conversations. How does that work, though? I mean, you would think the line between cross-stitching and <laughs> difficult conversations <laughs> and is white not supremacy. a direct, right. it's like the, not not a direct, direct line. line. <laughs> right. So how does it actually work? I think of my art as sort of the stop sign, right? It's the hook. So as people are scrolling through Instagram and it's like one thing after the other, because of the strong messaging and the really sort of like feminine, gentle understanding of how embroidery exists in the world, people stop. And then we have a conversation about it, right? It's about engaging folks. And it's a lot of work on my part to facilitate those digital conversations. But a lot of it is about trying to get folks to show up in person and like be interested in the medium and be interested in in learning a new skill set and coming together and then continuing those conversations in real life. Why connect the difficult conversation piece to your work? Because it would be so easy (laughs) to just put up cross-stitching and be like, hey, this is a thing I did. If you want to learn more about it, I can help you figure out how to do this too. Why was it important to connect that other piece? I'm engaged in these conversations every day in lots of different spaces and forums. I just saw a lot, and I still see, and we all see, a lot of really unproductive online conversations about hard topics. And for me, it was like, can we use this tool in a way that can lead to productive conversations around hard topics? But can we also use it as a mechanism for gathering in real life? And... It's almost like people are, on my Instagram in particular, using it to get comfortable having these conversations so that they can get to a place where they can sit in community with folks that they might never sit in community with and have the conversations. So people who follow your work know you as badass (laughs) cross-stitch. Can you give us some examples of some of the messages people see when they follow you on Instagram? It ranges greatly. You know, I'm a huge Missy Elliott fan. So it's everything from Missy Elliott lyrics to like a lot of my own observations on all things related to everything that nobody wants to talk about. Do you have pieces that really stay with you that you've done? I mean, my Boys Will Be Boys piece is like always going to be my favorite piece. Describe that for us. So it says Boys Will Be Boys, which is, you know, just this. It drives me insane as like an expression and then so the bottom boy is crossed out and it says held accountable for their effing actions so that was one that went real viral around harvey weinstein even though i made it about trump your art projects have gotten a lot of attention particularly around the time of the women's march and um, also the me too movement what was it about your work that resonated with people specifically at those times I think the anger. Mm. (laughs) I I call it rage stitching. So sometimes I just rage stitch. Like, I have no plan. Maybe I've had a glass of wine, and I'm ready to just (laughs) stab something until I feel better. (laughs) And so those pieces tend to get the most attention because people can see the rage in them, Mm. and they're feeling that rage. And there's just a a dissonance about it Mm -hmm. that people really can connect with. Shannon, you moved to Chicago about 15 years ago. Yeah. How do you think... Chicago has shaped your art and work? I don't think I would have done half the things that I've done had I not moved to Chicago. I think this place is magic. I'm from Boston, and I I got here, and I was like, oh, this feels familiar. Like, it feels like Boston. Working class, gritty, like, this is what I'm used to. But everybody's so nice. And so 
I think the support I got from the minute I got here to just do whatever I wanted to do as long as I was hustling, like I couldn't have done that anywhere else. Well, you, you've come across this community of quilters and stitchers here in Chicago, and you hold these community meetups called Stitch Ups. <laughs> yeah, I made that up. <laughs> what happens in those gatherings? What's the energy like? Oh, it's magic. You know, we're just gathering, and I'm teaching folks how to stitch if they don't know how, and folks who already know are there to sort of just stitch with other people. I try to center it around people's individual stories. I think that um, one of the bigger challenges for women is centering themselves in their narratives. And I use these stitch-ups as a way to sort of trick people into spending time reflecting and thinking about themselves, their story, and making art about themselves, which I think is just something that is wildly beneficial, but we don't necessarily do. And it's a lot of folks who are like, I'm not an artist. I'm not a crafter. I don't make things. I can't believe I'm here. Oh, God, this isn't perfect. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's like working with them through that until at the end, they're like holding their piece up, jumping up and down, like, look at what I made. I did it. I did it. And that's all I want. Well, it's interesting, because when I think about even within my family, there were many women who quilted, who stitched, and it was just something they did, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't necessarily recognized as art. And that's part of your work is also trying to bring recognition to fiber arts. Why is that an important piece of your work? I'm kind of grossed out by the hierarchy in the art world and the sort of pretension that comes with that. And, you know, that's all patriarchal and who had access to what and what was valued and what wasn't. And if you've ever made a quilt, like, if you haven't, go try to make one and tell me that's not art. It is such a beautiful art form. And we look at it throughout history and we're like, ah, it's women's work. It's handicraft, right? It's decorative art. We call it craft, which automatically means it's not art. But I reject that you have to reject craft in order for it to be considered art. So I I use craft and art interchangeably as a way to sort of push that. And I just think it's a feminist move. It has to be respected, it has to be appreciated, and it has to be elevated to where it belongs. Well, speaking of respecting the work of women, you're wrapping up a really large project called Rita's Quilt. Yes. Tell us the story behind this. Um, So I love estate sale shopping. I do it all the time. But I'm usually looking for antique textiles that have already been embroidered. Sometimes I come across unfinished pieces that people have sort of left behind. And if you've ever been to an estate sale, you can sort of tell the ones where you're there because the person has passed. And their whole house is just sort of as it was. This particular scenario, I walked into this home and I saw this gorgeous hand-embroidered map on the wall. And I immediately just like beelined for it, pulled it off the wall and started studying their stitching. And they were a wildly talented stitcher. And the price tag was five dollars, which was like a win for me and also gutted me at the same time. Because if we go back to what we value and what we consider art, you know, five bucks on a wall. So I took it down as I was obsessing over it. The woman who ran the estate sale was like, if you're into stitching, hit the bedroom, there's supplies. So I go in, there's a box, I open it, embroidery hoop, yay, winning. Then I start going through and I realize, oh, dear God, this is a totally prepared 
and barely started massive embroidery slash quilting project. And it was it was a map of the United States. Yeah. So the centerpiece is a map of the U.S. and then all of the hexagons that make the quilt. Each one is the state bird and the state flower, which again is nothing I would ever stitch. But I sat on the floor and I brought it up and I was like, how much? And they were like, well, do you want the Tupperware bin that is in? Six dollars. <laughs> so eleven dollars for this massive project. Yeah. And you learned about Rita as well. She was ninety nine when she passed. Yeah, she was ninety nine when she passed. We know some facts about her. We know she was a school nurse. That her mom immigrated from Canada. She lived in and around Chicago her whole life. She was married, had a child. Fun now, facts. Now you didn't you didn't take on this project alone. You reached out to the quilting and and cross stitching community to say, I need help to finish this. How many people ended up being involved in the project to help finish this project? I was hoping to get a couple people to help me stitch some stuff. And within 24 hours, I had over a 1,000 volunteers. And I was taken aback. At this point, there are going to be over 150 people who have touched this project. The Completed Quilt. We'll see its Chicago debut next week. Where can people see it? December 21st. Um, we're going to have a pop-up show at Women Made Gallery. So we will let Chicago see the quilt before anyone else. And, and we'll have pieces from my other projects, the community projects. So you'll see lots of other people's art as well. And then the quilt will get its grand national debut on March 7th in Paducah, Kentucky at the National Quilt Museum. What will it be like for you to see that finished project? I'm going to do a dance. <laughs> there will be some flossing. There will be a happy dance. <laughs> like this thing has taken over my life since September. And it's just so, it's so beautiful that like, I'm not sad about it being completed. I'm excited about what it's going to inspire next. And what do you hope Rita would think about it? Man, I hope she's just high five and air fives all over the place. You know, I just... I know we did justice by this thing, and I hope that, I hope she can rest in craft peace. (laughs) That's craftivist Shannon Downey. She's also the Director of Development at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, and she teaches at Columbia College Chicago. Now, we'll tweet out some images of her work at WBEZ Reset, but you can follow her on Instagram at Badass Cross Stitch. Her completed quilt project, Rita's Quilt, will make its Chicago debut at Woman Made Gallery in Pilsen on December 21st from 2 to 4, and you can check it out there before it heads to the National Quilt Museum in Kentucky for its national debut. Shannon, it was great to talk to you. Thanks for coming by. Thanks so much. And that's it for today's Reset. Is there something or someone in your neighborhood who you think would be perfect for the show? Well, leave a message on our hotline. The number is 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.